This is Today FM. It's been a busy week on the Brexit front and in a whole range of other areas and the government is once again facing criticism over its blind handling and blind confidence of the Garda Commissioner as they face a major scandal. It also seems a little bit like history repeating, doesn't it? Welcome along, I'm Gavin Riley, and that was The Week. Before we get stuck into the turmoil in the Gardaí and Brexit and the rest of the week's events though, it struck me that sometimes we have an item on one week's podcast and we say we'll keep an eye on it, only for that story not to appear the following week. So with that in mind, let's just have a whistle-stop tour of the events that we had on last week's show, starting with the Dáil Prayer. Now, the new rules to include 30 seconds of silence kicked in on Tuesday, and just beforehand, people before profit and solidarity came out to the plinth to tell us exactly where they stood about the Dáil Prayer, or rather where they sat. Today is we are making a point but we also have leaders questions so we have to be there early um, but we are making a point of saying no way we won't pray and uh, <laughs> yeah I know it sounds funny but it's true it's no way we won't pray um, and we think that most people will support us on this it's a very logical and very uh, non-sectarian position to take and we should be allowed to sit. It's unbelievable really that they're imposing this compulsion of you must stand up with the rest of us when you don't believe in, in any of this stuff. That's Deputy Gino Kenny there having a good giggle by the way, clearly bowled over by the spontaneity of the good humour from his colleague Breed Smith. But inside the chamber there was little prospect it turned out of the rules being enforced. The five members of Solidarity PVP, there's usually six, but Paul Murphy has been on trial, so he hasn't been around Leinster House. Uh, the five appeared to stand up when the Count Corla arrived, but then sit when he began the prayer and remain seated for the silence afterwards. And so too did Joan Collins of the Independence for Change group, a few rows behind them. After the silence, we all waited to see if the Count Corla would point out any indiscretions. Now take leaders' questions under Standing Order 29, please. Deputy Nihal Martin. But no, the gesture went unremarked upon and unpunished. And the only remarkable thing was that during the 30 seconds of silence, two of them held up signs reading, For freedom of religion, separate church and state. That too, by the way, is another breach of the House rules, because there have been previous rulings of the chair against the display of any item in the chamber. But both apparent infractions went unremarked upon. And then on Wednesday, for the second day of the new regime, the TDs just went back to what appears to be their usual practice, simply boycotting the prayer entirely and only entering the chamber when the prayer was done. And so, the world keeps turning. Also keeping turning this week is the whole cabinet principle of secrecy around how Ireland votes at the UN. Last week I told you how the Independent Alliance weren't happy about Ireland refusing to reveal whether it supported a Saudi bid to get onto the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Now the issue was raised at the cabinet on Tuesday morning, where the ministers were basically told, Sorry lads, we don't kiss and tell. And that was also the message in the dole to Sinn Féin's Quivino Quaylon. The programme for government uh, refers, I believe, on 15 occasions in commitments to women that claim to empower them and to tackle the inequalities experienced by them in our society and internationally. Now, last week, the government refused to reveal how it voted in the election of ah. Saudi Arabia to the UN Commission on the Status Deputy, of that's Women. Already been so I'm asking you, Taoiseach... Did you vote yes or no to allow Saudi Arabia take a seat on the Commission on the Status for Women? 
don't imagine the Taoiseach voted at all, did you? Has had a very strong record in, in respect of defending women's rights. Uh, this, committee, this committee at the United Nations will be chaired by incoming Ambassador Geraldine Bourne-Nason on behalf of Ireland next year. And you can rest assured that the question of women's rights will be one that will be foremost in her mind at that committee. Um, it's already been made very clear by the Minister for Foreign Affairs that not since 1947 have any of these secret ballots been divulged, and there are very good reasons for that. Um, clearly, uh, the issue uh, that arose here was that a, pan a panel of five countries uh, were put forward, uh, Turkmenistan, Korea, Japan, Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Thank you, there were five nominations for five places, um, and clearly, uh, obviously, there was a place for every country involved. So the important issue here is the functioning of the United Nations, the mechanics of how it actually works. And in my view, it needs a pretty serious reform. Be that as it may, uh, these, uh, these votes occur on a regular basis uh, every Thank year, you, as they have since 1947, Deputy O'Callaghan. This is the first time that Saudi Arabia have been on this committee. Uh, this will be a committee focused on women's rights, uh, and obviously Saudi Arabia will have to hear some home truths and will have to play their part. Um, but I, I, support, I support Minister Flanagan. I support Minister Flanagan here in this matter. And for those who wish that there would be a big row about this inside Cabinet, let me say that the members of the Independent Alliance were quite happy to say we need to have the opportunity to ask relevant questions um, and uh, be better informed about votes that are coming up at the United Nations by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and that's the case. Thank you, Clearly, since we it was 447, we've never time. had cases of divulgence of secret votes. You know how important they are, Deputy. Now, there was some kind of concession or compromise given to the independents when they raised it on Tuesday. They were told, at least, that they'd be given a heads-up when any red flag issues are voted on in future. Not, however, that that's much use when you think about it, because what happens next time that there's a vote and somebody like the Saudis, who don't allow women to drive or to work without a male guardian's approval when they want to get onto a major women's group. Uh, the ministers will be told in advance that the vote is coming, they can offer their thoughts, but they won't be told how we voted. And it makes you wonder, if the constitution requires collective cabinet responsibility, and then votes are being cast on Ireland's behalf without every other minister knowing even what that vote is, then how can they act collectively? How can they have collective responsibility? That was a question I put to the independent spokeswoman in government on Tuesday, but she didn't seem to have an answer. And then I asked whether the convention of keeping votes secret from ministers also included a convention to dilute that whole constitutional point that every minister is equally responsible for every action. The government spokesman there had no answer either. Today FM. Moving on to abortion, which we discussed last week, there hasn't really been much by way of development this week, but there is still a whole lot of confusion around what sort of format the Oireachtas Committee will take. The Dáil has passed a motion, in fact last month, to put 16 members onto this new committee that will look at the Citizens' Assembly findings. The Shannon was expected to do a similar thing and nominate four of its own members, but instead it gave itself the right to appoint seven. And there hasn't yet been agreement on exactly how many the Shannon will put onto the committee. But the numbers, it seems, aren't the only uncertainty. Fine Gael is supposed to have five TDs on the committee, but it can only find two volunteers. It's got Kate O'Connell and Bernard Durkin, but can't get anyone else to take up the remaining vacancies. And then at the other end, the Social Democrats and Greens were only getting one member between them, as indeed were Solidarity and People Before Profit. 
Now, both of those groups planned to rotate members so that they could get multiple voices onto each seat. And that was a similar principle in the Shannad, where the Civic Engagement Group, which comprises of six progressively-minded independent members, were proposing to nominate three of their members to share the seat on a rotational basis. On Friday, though, the Oireachtas authorities put the nicks on the whole thing. They got together to try and fix the numbers row, but failed. But they also decreed that members will not be allowed to rotate their seats. So that means no luck for Breed Smith and Ruth Coppinger, who had planned to share a seat, or Lynn Ruan, Colette Kelleher and Alice Mary Higgins, all of whom had proposed to share a seat from the Shannad. But that is all for a little while down the road, because we still don't know how many members there are supposed to be, and it won't even really be formed or get underway until the Citizens' Assembly submits a formal report, just technically telling the government what we already know it's decided on anyway. Uh, One other note on the National Maternity Hospital, which we briefly discussed last week. No movement this week. Simon Harris has said in writing that he plans to get back to the government to report on his progress by the end of May. So we will literally have to wait and see. Today FM. Bear with me for just a couple more minutes, by the way, while I indulge myself just a little bit. On Monday morning, I published a piece about the current makeup of the Supreme Court and some vacancies that are going to come up in the next few months. Now, there have been very few appointments to any courts at all in the last 12 months, and that's because Shane Ross, the Transport Minister, fundamentally disagrees with Cabinet having the power to fill those jobs. In fact, there has been almost little or no progress on a judicial appointments bill. Now, the piece that I wrote on todayfm.com is still there. You can read it back if you like. But Brendan Howland on Tuesday in the Dole summarised the contents fairly well for me. As journalist Gavin Riley uh, has pointed out in an analysis piece published yesterday, although there are currently nine sitting justices of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Mary Lafoy and the Chief Justice Susan Denham are both due to retire this year. And meanwhile, Justice Peter Charlton is obviously going to be Uh, completely occupied by the disclosures tribunals for the foreseeable future. Uh, That will reduce by August the number of sitting Supreme Court judges available to six. Um, Obviously that is not uh, an acceptable situation if the capacity of the Supreme Court is cut by a third. So can I ask you, Thishuk, when will the appointments uh, be made and when will the legislation, more importantly, be agreed by these houses, when will the the government position be clear on judicial appointments so that we can not only fill these vacancies that are going to arise in coming months, uh, but also the other vacancies that arise uh, in uh, other courts that now need to be filled as a matter of urgency. Thank you, Deputy Howland. The question here, uh, Cancola. As you're aware, uh, vacancies... um, are recommended for filling by a process to the Minister for Justice. Um, and um, there was one vacancy arising from the uh, death of an esteemed Supreme Court judge that wasn't filled uh, and that wasn't recommended to be filled because the Court of Appeal uh, was, was taking quite a, uh, you know, a number of cases that would normally go to the Supreme Court. That was the purpose of the Court of Appeal being set up. So um, in, in, the, in the normal course of events, a number of, of members of the judiciary have been appointed recently on foot of the recommendations that have come in reduced numbers from the Judicial Appointments Board. I expect that the legislation dealing with Judicial Appointments will come before Cabinet next Tuesday. That bill is due at the Cabinet next week, but it's not down on the government's schedule to be brought to the Dáil any time in May. 
And because the doll isn't sitting for the first week of June, that effectively leaves only five weeks then to get it through the doll and one more week to get it through the Shannon before the summer break. Otherwise, the country's highest court will basically be flying in one wing. Now, based on previous habits, it's very unlikely for any bill to make it through the houses with only six weeks' notice. And indeed, some of the five weeks in the doll might also be lost due to a possible cabinet reshuffle. And that is because this week... Enda Kenny made the momentous announcement on his leadership, in which he said that he would deal with it next week. And in fairness, there was little prospect that he would deal with it this week and announce plans to step down because of the visit of Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator. We'll talk a little bit more about him later in the show. But simply, Brexit is too big an issue to be overlooked for Kenny's political wake. So that means that Kenny will probably announce his retirement this coming Wednesday, May the 19th. That will kick off a process where Fine Gael will give members, perhaps until the Friday, to give them 48 hours to get themselves nominated. Then the plan was that they would hold a series of regional events around a week later, which would work as both debates for the electoral candidates and polling stations for local voters and councillors to actually cast their ballots and have their say. The plan then would be to have a parliamentary party meeting sometime in the first week of June, which would basically also then double as the voting station for the parliamentary party members, the TDs and senators, and that, once all that's done, would then allow the count to take place perhaps the day afterwards. And all in all, it would mean having a new Fine Gael leader around the same time as the British general election takes place on Thursday, June the 8th. But then, lo, what do we find out? Just when we're going to record this podcast, news comes through of Enda Kenny's travel plans, and it turns out he will be away for the entire first week of June on a trade mission to the USA. And that's exactly the week that we thought this election would be wrapping up. So either that means that the timetable slips, or Enda Kenny doesn't announce his retirement this week, or he pointedly leaves the country so that he's not seen to have any influence. And it all ultimately means that we have as little information really as we always did, other than to say Kenny will deal with it next week, which is what he said the week that he was in America which was eight weeks ago, so we'll have to see. What we do know is that when Enda Kenny told us last year that he'd be Taoiseach for the visit of the Pope, he was right. Albeit not Pope Francis, rather Pope Tawadros II, the Coptic Christian Pope, who is visiting next week to bring messages and good wishes from the Coptic Christian Church of Alexandria. This is Today FM. Now, there were two major subjects dominating political minds in this week. Uh, The first is Brexit and, of course, that visit that I mentioned a little earlier of Michel Barnier to Leinster House. Now, he is a career diplomat. He's a former French member of the European Commission. He is now the Commission's chief Brexit negotiator. In other words, really, he is Brussels' front man as regards Brexit negotiations. On Thursday, he became the first ever non-head of state or government to address a joint sitting of the Dáil and Shannon telling us about the fairly Irish route he took to get there. When I flew to Dublin yesterday night on a rather well-known low-cost carrier, still no coffee, but a bit more, a little bit more, uh, seat space than before. Now, his visit was really intended as something of a getting-to-know-you exercise. I mean, if this guy is going to be at the centre of all things Brexit, it's a good idea for Ireland to get to know him, and indeed for him to get to know all the other politicians in Ireland. And although there were plenty of platitudes about how Ireland's interests are Europe's interests and how we would not be forgotten and that we have 26 partners around the table all willing to bat for us, 
There was one moment of frankness that punctured any sense that this was ever going to be easy. Now Brexit changes the external borders of the EU, but I will work with you to avoid a hard border. The UK's departure of the EU will have consequences. We have the duty to speak the truth. We have together the duty to speak the truth. Custom controls are part of the EU border management. They protect the single market. In other words, if there's any difference in customs policies between the North and the Republic, there's going to have to be a border, including customs checks. And that does kind of burst the bubble a little bit. Now, there were 10 different sets of opposition speeches given in reply to Mr Barnier, and I don't think it would be fair to go through some of them and not go through all of them, so I won't go through any of them if that makes sense. But there was one interesting intervention the next day, Friday, not from within Leinster House, but from Tony Blair, who was in Wicklow attending a conference of the European People's Party. That's the European political party to which Fine Gael belongs. Now, Blair himself doesn't belong to that group, but he was invited to attend because of his experience in Northern Irish affairs. And he spoke about how disastrous a hard border would be. As one of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought into being the peace process in Northern Ireland, I'm extremely anxious to make sure that Brexit does not impair that agreement, that we continue to have the closest possible relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There are really important and difficult challenges in this. At the moment, we have a common travel area uh, where people can travel freely um, between South and North, North and South, on the island of Ireland. This is vital to maintain. In addition, the open border between the North and South is, in terms of trade has done an immense amount for UK-Irish trade and commercial relationships. And obviously it's important that, though there will be difficult challenges in relation to this, that we, again, safeguard as much of that as as possible and minimise any potential damage. Uh, Inside the hall, where journalists weren't allowed, there were some even bigger words from Tony Blair. He suggested that the wording of the Good Friday Agreement, the, the agreement which delivers devolved government and peace to Northern Ireland, never actually envisioned an Ireland where one jurisdiction was inside the EU, but the other one was outside. Now, he suggested that the language might therefore need changing. That's not unthinkable, it's not unmanageable, and it has been done before. But when you consider that Northern Ireland doesn't have a government right now, it hasn't really had one for the entire year so far, it is just another headache given the political stalemate in Stormont. Now, Bertie's old close pal, uh, now Blair's old pal Bertie Ahern, also popped up that afternoon with some thoughts of his own. He was speaking to BBC Radio Foil about the prospect of the border and how it could still be avoided, he thought. Once you have a, the Britain come out of the customs union, uh, I think probably a lot of the work on it will have to come around. Um, is there some way uh, that Britain uh, can have an association uh, with the customs union uh, and some arrangements uh, around that that can allow us to avoid having customs checks. It seems to me that it's in, like, the, the single market and immigration and free movement, you know, all of those things I can see, it's not impossible to see solutions. Barnier and many of the MEPs spent the Friday afternoon then touring the border region. They visited a food complex in County Monaghan just to get a real grip of how seamless the border currently is. And indeed, many of the people who aren't from this part of the world remarked 
that they were surprised to see that there were more visible boundaries between Irish counties than there actually are between the two Irish countries. Uh, One other intervention, though, that I thought I would share with you. At that EPP event in Wicklow, one of the Fine Gael MEPs, Sean Kelly, continually made the case that Ireland should prepare for three long-term prospects, either a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, or no Brexit at all. So I took him aside for a few minutes and I asked him, what do you mean by that? Does that mean, in fact, that you think we should prepare for Brexit not to happen at all, ever? That process has to go through now. And the general election really is about giving Theresa May the strongest possible mandate to negotiate a withdrawal agreement with the European Union. But really, the real discussions will happen subsequent to that. And that's where it's going to be very difficult to get the Brexit that the British think they will get. Because particularly our leader Manfred Weber and Guy Verhofstadt and others have repeatedly said there's going to be no cherry-picking. And this is where the points made by Tony Blair this morning come in. Because I asked him this question at the meeting. And he said that once this election is over, that he sees the emergence of a stronger opposition, which will develop over a period of time, which is natural. And that will uh, focus on those who want to stay in the European Union. And also he said there'll be an educational process whereby the ordinary people will actually see what actually are the consequences of leaving. And he mentioned as well, and he gave a very good analogy, he said, Brexit right now is like somebody doing a house swap without having seen the house they're moving into. He says when they see the house they're moving into, they may well change their minds. And I think that's going to be a period of three, four or five years. So in some respects, the longer the negotiations go on, the better chance the educational process have kicking in. And at least at that stage, and you have to respect democracy, the British people will know exactly what the withdrawal agreement or the final agreement will be. And, and do you think that the result of that could then be that they'll decide that, OK, Brexit as it currently stands will have to go through, but that they won't be long out the door before they'll be knocking, asking to come back in again? Yes, or also that final agreement in five years' time, the government, there could be a change of government in the meantime, they could say, we're not going to vote in this in Parliament, we're putting it to the people, which is very logical because the people decided to vote for Brexit, so now they'll say, this is what Brexit actually means, is this what you intended it to mean? Are you happy with it? And then it could happen. So there are three options, but that's one of the three. At this point in time, definitely leaving in two years' time. Today FM. Finally then to the other big matter occupying minds in Leinster House this week, the situation regarding the Garda Commissioner and its knock-on effects. Now, the Thursday of last week, of last week, I should stress, Noreen O'Sullivan appeared for a marathon six-hour session at the Public Accounts Committee, and that was all to do with financial irregularities at the Garda Training College in Templemore. Now, there's simply way too much information to go through in a podcast like this, but among the things that the a recent report into Templemore had discovered was that the college had been gaining income by renting out land which it didn't actually own at all. It was land that was owned by the Office of Public Works and which was set aside for Templemore to use as a tactical training facility. But in fact, the land was never developed and the Garda Training College had been renting it out, getting rental income, even though it didn't own it. Uh, it also discovered the existence of 50 bank accounts where there, by right ought only to be one. The majority of the rest, by the way, were controlled by senior Garda members. It also discovered the use of public money to kit out a privately owned shop facility 
and other issues like irregularities about how revenue from the bar there was being accounted for and where the money was going to. Now, during the whole hearing, Noreen O'Sullivan was asked when she had found out about these internal moves to try and tackle all of this. And this is going back to July 2015. The other voice you're going to hear in the following segment is from the Garda Internal Head of Human Resources. His name is John Barrett. The two of them are being interviewed by Mary Lou MacDonald and by Alan Kelly. On the 27th of July, I believe, uh, there was a very brief conversation in a room after a meeting in Templemore in which Mr Barrett raised certain issues specifically around some work he was doing uh, when I was present along with the two Deputy Commissioners and the Chief Administrative Officer. Uh, My recollection is very brief. How brief? Five minutes, ten minutes? I would say, um, I don't know Deputy, but I would say from recollection and from memory it was brief. Okay, can I, thank you, does that tally with your recollection? The meeting lasted two hours. The meeting was two hours? It was. It's in the minute. You have a minute of the meeting? Can can the committee have a minute of the meeting? It's in the text of the document that I think the chairman has already asked for. Electronically to everyone was because of the Skype. Thank you, Carla. Can can I ask the commissioner? So the meeting was actually two hours isn't brief, is it? Deputy, my memory is that it was a brief meeting after a very long meeting that we had in the Garda College. And uh, my memory is that it was brief, and the, the issues in relation to the college, but there was an undertaking given uh, that basically there would be a report. Uh, okay, no, we, we just need to get to the bottom, we just need clarity mm. on this, because in, in nobody's language is a two-hour exchange brief. Mr Barrett seems to be quite sure in his recollection, and he says that he has a minute and documentary evidence to support the fact that it was a two-hour meeting. Well, Deputy, I can only give you my recollection. So what you have here is a Garda Commissioner making repeated, explicit claims under oath in a committee, only for one of her senior officials to then completely contradict her. And what's more, Barrett then produces written notes taken at the time, which back up his account of events. The meeting began and ended. It started at 5.20. It even details the, the, the order in which people came into the room, believe it or not. Uh The meeting at the Garda College on Monday 27th was important for many respects, you'll recall. It began at 17.20. Thank you. We don't have it. Maybe could be read out the record. Is it long? Is it long? It's long. long It's about six pages long. But I mean, and it ended at 19... Well, I left the meeting at 19.37 and I was the first to leave. Now that's obviously embarrassing enough for Noreen O'Sullivan, but it also emerges in the course of this hearing that the Garda Head of Legal Affairs had written to her at around the same time telling her to invoke Section 41. Now, that is a clause in the Garda Act which requires the Garda Commissioner to tell the Minister for Justice if something serious is brewing which could undermine public confidence in the Guards. O'Sullivan was asked to do this in July 2015. It turns out that she didn't formally communicate about this to the Minister for Justice for 15 months afterwards. But there is a broader issue at play here. Separate to the whole question of the legal obligations, there's also the very serious claim that after becoming aware of the problems in Templemore, Noreen O'Sullivan did go about setting up some sort of internal committee to investigate everything, but left out the Garda head of audit, Niall Kelly. He spoke at the very same PAC hearing last week. I, I, th- I would think that there was... You talked about culture, right? I think there was a different culture at that stage. I think there was a culture of certain the wagons and I got caught trying to bang into the wagons. 
Now, Kelly this week also wrote to the policing authority to complain about a separate issue. That's the one million phantom breath tests that we discussed a few weeks ago. Kelly, bear in mind again, is the head of audit. But it turns out he didn't have any role in scrutinising a report about the source of the wrongful data that was given to the policing authority. Therefore, he says, you can't call that report an audit, which many senior guardy were, because it hasn't been audited. And he would know because he's the head of audit. But he's not the only one, and here you're beginning to see a bit of a trend, because you have Niall Kelly, who says that he hasn't been allowed to audit. You have the head of legal affairs, who is telling the commissioner to inform the minister because she has legal obligations to do so, and being ignored. Then you have, in the wake of all the guarded breath tests, Gardy going about reviewing their figures and classifications on other whole things, including homicides. Now... You'd think that homicides would be fairly easy to categorise because surely you can't miscategorise a murder. But Noreen Sullivan was at a meeting of the policing authority only a few weeks ago. She appeared to suggest that the homicide figures had been reviewed and approved and all signed off on. But then over last weekend it emerged that the Garda head of analysis, who is a guy called Dr Gurchand Singh, hadn't actually seen the report first. So, embarrassingly, you have a situation where the Garda head of review and analysis is saying that there's been a report and analysis that's been handed over that he hasn't seen. And now you're really beginning to see a a trend. And then on top of all of this, you have the head of HR, John Barrett, who you heard in the excerpt earlier, directly contradicting her. And then not only that, he says that when he started investigating the Templemore issues, he discovered that there had been two previous internal reports done about which nothing had been acted. Now, I don't want to say it a third time, but there's clearly a trend here where you have senior civilian members of Angarda either completely dissenting from or undermining or in turn being undermined by Noreen O'Sullivan. And she's already running a force where morale is completely shattered and where she and the rank and file are blaming each other over the breath tests, among other things. And in the wake of that... Other reviews and audits are being carried out without the people responsible for them getting a full role or a full say. And then even when it emerges that something is reported, the most appropriate people to be consulted, like the head of audit, are excluded from any further inquiries. It just all seems to totally contradict what Noreen O'Sullivan had said in the past about how whistleblowers were going to be a valued, protected part of the force who needed to be encouraged and appreciated and generally given every help they needed. And it really has to lead you to conclude, why would anyone bother blowing the whistle if even the commissioner themselves might then leave them out of the work that would fix the problem? Or, as has been claimed elsewhere, that they then get smeared by Garda HQ as a result. One little interesting side note here, by the way. On Fianna Fáil's front bench meeting on Wednesday, uh, there were calls for a motion of no confidence in Frances Fitzgerald, precisely because she appears to have unwavering, unshakable confidence in Noreen O'Sullivan. Now, Micheál Martin pulled back those quells. He immediately basically shot it down on the basis that he says Fianna Fáil is obliged to support any government ministers if there's ever a motion of confidence, and therefore trying to sack Fitzgerald might therefore bring down the government. And that kind of underlines a broader point. When the supposed party of opposition, the leader of the opposition, is unable to call for a minister to quit, even if they think that they're categorically unfit for the job, then are you really being an opposition? I mean, you don't usually expect opposition parties to try and fix the government from within. Now, the word at the time of recording this podcast is that Fianna Fáil will oppose the reappointment of Fitzgerald in the wake of any cabinet reshuffle, whenever there is a new Fine Gael leader. 
But that too would be a breach of the confidence and supply arrangement because Fianna Fáil had signed up to facilitating the appointment of ministers. And it all just leaves you wondering, if the government is in hoc to the Gardaí, the Gardaí are effectively in hoc to the Garda Commissioner, and the opposition in turn are in hoc to the government, then who's really guarding the Guardians? And where are the checks and balances in what's supposed to be a modern, responsible republic? Today FM. That is our lot for this week. A big thank you for listening or for downloading or doing whatever it is you do. Uh, please like and subscribe and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or Stitcher or Podcast Addict. Whatever it is you get your podcasts, any positive reviews or shares would, of course, always be really, really, really welcomed and really, really, really appreciated. We'll see you again next week, possibly with a new Finnegale leader on the cards. Who knows? Certainly, whenever there is news, we'll bring it to you and we won't leave you in the dark for too long. So I'll talk to you at some stage in the next seven days. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I'm Gavin Riley, and that was The Week.